If you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, and while you're finding that, which it, you probably already had your place marked. I want to start with a, a principle, uh, a truth that I wonder if you've ever noticed before. And that is that because of remaining sin, even Christians, because we have sin indwelling within us, throughout the Christian life, we have a tendency to take the good things that God gives, the blessings that God gives, the work that God does for us in our lives and in our hearts, we have a tendency to take that and then twist it, distort it, contort it, confuse it, and begin to see those things almost like we've done them, almost like it was something we did. And then from there, we, we very easily make the leap to self-sufficiency. This, as a Christian, you know, you, you come into the Christian life and, and for some of us perhaps, maybe your lifestyle was, was radically changed when you became a Christian. And so from that point, you begin to become familiar with what Christianity is, um, how to act like a Christian. Maybe your lifestyle drastically changed and, and things in the, the way you treat people in the workplace, it's, it's drastically different than it was before. Um, you, you meet new people and you, you're, you're gathered into a church and you um, find that you're associating with people that really outside of Christ, you don't have a whole lot in common with. Conversation uh, outside of spiritual matters is difficult because what we share in common goes far deeper than, than temporal things. And so you learn how to communicate with people and you become familiar with new people and you get new friends and, and you become, uh, become accustomed to ways of speaking. The, the ways Christians talk to one another, you know it's different. We kind of talk to each other differently than people in the world talk to one another. You, you, you become accustomed, really, to standing at odds with the culture. Hopefully, over time, it, at first, maybe it's a little difficult. But over time, you, you get used to realizing that you're not like the culture and they're not like you and you know that things that you do are going to be drastically different than the things that they do. The things that you love are drastically different than the things that they love. And over time it becomes normal. We settle into a normal, hopefully, a normal way of Christian living where our lives are characterized by godliness and righteousness and we normally look different than the culture at large, and, and, and probably ourselves before we were converted, we accumulate knowledge and understanding. We, we start to learn doctrines that before becoming a Christian, words we had never even heard before. Not only now do we know what they know how to pronounce them, but we kind of know what they mean and we learn to articulate these doctrinal truths. We, we come to a mental comprehension of what Christianity is and what the Bible teaches. All are these, all of these are blessings from God. God works in His people and makes His people different in every area of life. The way that we perceive the world changes. But we have the tendency, after that stuff begins to happen, and then every so often, we have this tendency to begin to confuse all of that work God has done for something we've done 
And then that breeds in us self-sufficiency. We, get, we, we have a tendency to get to that point where we think, well, maybe I'm good now. And it usually shows forth in, in, in doctrinal things. You know, we learn, we learn a particular doctrine and we get it and we're like, we think, wow, I'm, I'm figuring this out. And then somebody presents to you another, you know, another truth that you've never considered. We've been talking about covenant theology. Well, if you've never considered that, your, your mind just opens up. And once again, you realize, I don't know what I thought I knew. And the tendency is that you learn that and you get all that in your, in your sack of truth and you get to the point where you think, I'm good now. We confuse that with self-sufficiency. We see this typified in the nation of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 to 12, Moses says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, now notice how this is written, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Because he knew that the blessings of God have a tendency, we twist them and turn them into self-sufficiency. The same principles enumerated in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Paul talks about Israel and they're, they're traversing through the wilderness and how God had sustained them. And he says, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Here's the reality. It's a tendency for God's people to get to a point where they think they stand. You think you've got it. You think you're standing on your own two feet. And Paul says, and Moses said before, it's at that very point that you had better take heed. When you think you're standing, take heed lest you fall. It's a tendency. Most of us have been walking with the Lord for a while we're developing good habits. We, we're growing in our understanding of doctrinal truths, hopefully from the Scriptures. Our lives are being shaped by the Scripture. Hopefully we can all point to something in our lives that, that shows a clear demarcation between ourselves and the culture at large. I think it's safe to say that for the most part we tend to enjoy worship. We enjoy the Word of God. We enjoy the preaching of the Word of God. We enjoy uh, the means of grace and Christian fellowship. The question is, do you think you're standing? When you come to all these things and, and you, you come to yourself and if you take a, a mental, spiritual inventory of all that, does it ever lead you to think that you're standing? Because it's at that very point where you need to take heed lest you fall. That's the principle that we're going to see in our text today. The disciples have spent three years with Christ. Day in and day out. Not just Sundays. 
every day with Him. They are familiar with Him. They are close to Him. I would imagine they have developed a relaxed friendship with Him. They have probably moved well beyond the, 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 the felt need to put on for Him. They, they have, they're, they're friends with Him. They're close with Him. They're accustomed to His lifestyle. They're starting to learn how He deals with other people and how He deals with them. It's now becoming normal to them that some people love them and other people hate them. And they're used to that. Some people love their Lord. Some people hate their Lord. They've gotten used to the, the constant traveling of ministry and back and forth and teaching. They've been taught spiritual truths. They've been given insight. What we have in the scriptures is probably a, a, a minute portion of what these men had heard from the mouth of Jesus every day. And what we're going to see here is that this develops into a, an attitude of self-sufficiency. Notice Matthew chapter 26, verse 30. This verse is transitional, sort of establishes the context of what we're about to see. The first half of the verse takes place inside the upper room, and we could say the last half of the verse brings us out of the upper room. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So we see the, the, the location changes from where they had been to where they are going. And it says that they sung a hymn. That, that would, their hymn book was our book of songs. And it was traditional and is still traditional to this day for the Jews at the Passover feast to sing what, through what they called the Hallel Psalms. Psalms 113 to 118 were the psalms that they sung at the Passover. Now we tend to, to picture the upper room scene as dark and, and dreary and abysmal and back in the corner there's someone, there's a little cello and violin quartet and they're strumming some, some minor key tunes that just makes the whole thing eerie and, and depressing. And there were moments in the upper room, you can see in John as he lays out the upper room discourse, there were moments where Christ was very sober and, and he, he's, he's been on his knees, he's washed their feet after this point. So there were some sober moments. But if you, could, if you think about the psalms that they were singing, and I won't read them all, but I just want to read some snippets from these psalms to give you a sense of the mood of what was happening. From Psalms 113 to 118, just a few Lines, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 113, verse 1. Mm -hmm. Psalm 114, 7. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. Psalm 115, verse 12. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. Amen. Psalm 116.5 Gracious is the Lord and righteous our God is merciful. Psalm 117, the shortest of the Psalms. Praise the Lord all nations. Extol Him all peoples for great is His steadfast love toward us and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Psalm 118.1 Oh give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. 
Verse 14 of that one. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Verse 28. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. And the last verse on their lips. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. So picture the scene. you got 12 men. Judas is gone at this point. 12 men. They've had supper together, which for them was a traditional commemorating meal. The Lord has, has brought this thing into a, a new memorial meal. He spoke of his death, but they have sung these psalms together. They have drank from at least four cups of wine, which has probably at least a little bit gladdened their hearts. When men get together singing, that, they, that it creates this atmosphere of unity. And, and I would imagine a little bit of joy in their hearts. And so they walk out, and then notice verse 31. You can picture Jesus taking a bucket of ice-cold water and dumping it on this whole scene. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. Now that's, that's going to put a, a dampener. On the celebration. That, that's, the mood would have drastically changed. Think, we, we have this sort of an interjection in our culture where we, we precede something with, well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but, and then we proceed to say whatever we were going to say, and we really don't feel bad about it. That's just how we lighten the mood. Christ has just had to be the bearer of, of some really bad news for these disciples. These men who have walked with him every day, for three years, think about his perspective as he has to give this news to his disciples. Now we could probably picture the, those in law enforcement who have the job of going to somebody's house and waking up parents and telling them that their teenage son died in a car wreck. Or waking up parents and having to tell them they're, they're, your daughter has been found overdosed on heroin. And, and for the family, that, that moment right there in time just freezes. Everything in the world up until that point doesn't matter. Nothing matters. In that moment, life stops. That's bad. And you can imagine that the officer who has the job of doing that how weighty that has to be. How terrible it has to be to be the, the real bearer of bad news. Now that might be lightened a tad if he doesn't have a, a, a personal relationship with them. If he doesn't know them intimately. You know, it's, it's still awful. But it's not like your child dying. That might release the burden. But here Christ is speaking to his closest friends. They are hearing this from their master how would you feel, think about it, how would you feel if I came to you after lunch, pulled you aside, said, we went into the library, and I said, listen, I need you to know that in 10 years, you're not going to be a part of this church. As a matter of fact, you're going to be one of those people who say, well, I, I used to be a Christian, but I, I, I got out of that. I was, I, was, I was a part of the, the Reformed camp. I mean, we were really big into the Bibles, but, but I eventually came to the point where I had to stop playing the game. And, and so here I'm here to tell my story. And you write these 
survivor blogs about how you got out from under the... How would you feel if I told you that's going to be you? That's what these disciples are feeling. We've ate with you, we've drank with you, we've lived with you, we've walked with you, we've laughed with you, we've cried with you, we've sang with you, we shared the cup with you, and now you're going to tell us that we're going to fall away? The word for fall away is a word we've seen several times, scandalizo. It means caused to stumble or caused to sin. The picture, the literal picture is you're... Say you're taking a little jog. This might be easier for some of us to imagine than others. You're taking a jog through the woods, a wooded path, and there's a a root that has grown out of the pathway, and you trip over it. That root is your scandalizo. It is the the cause of your stumbling. Now, you might just sort of stumble a little bit and keep moving. You might fall completely to the ground and scrape your knee and hop back up and continue running. Or you might fall and break your leg and you're done. You've got to call somebody in to carry you out and you're, you're done moving. That's the picture, literally, bringing this into the, the area of morality and ethics. The idea is you are traveling on the pathway of godliness. You're walking in accord with righteousness. You're following the Lord. And then some circumstance, some occasion comes into your life, whether it's a person, whether it's a, a, a song, whether it's a television commercial or an ad on a billboard or, or just a com- uh, something somebody says to you that just wasn't the right thing to say in that moment for you and you trip up, you sin. Now that could just be a little stumbling. It could be a great sin, a great and grievous sin. It could be... It could provide the occasion of what we call apostasy. Notice what Jesus says. You will all fall away because of me this night. And that because of me, that's the preposition of causation. Why are we going to fall, Lord? Me. I'm the cause. Something and a circumstance is about to arise because of me, and you are going to trip up in your faith, in your Christian walk. Now we have to, or we should be clear, Christ is a stone of some sort to everybody. In Isaiah 28, 16, he is the cornerstone of a sure foundation. But in Isaiah 8, 14, he is the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. He's a rock to everybody. The question is not, will he be a rock? It's, what kind of rock will he be? Will he he hold me up? Will he be a foundation? Or will he be the cause of stumbling? And we would ask, how in the world could Christ be the cause of stumbling for a Christian? Judas is gone. So Judas is out of the way. We've got a collection of saints. How could Christ, who they love, who they walked with, who they they talked with, sang with, drank with, ate with, how could He cause them to sin against them? How could He give the occasion for stumbling? Well, we know what's going to happen. He's going to come to be arrested, and they're just going to scatter. They're they're out of here. Why? Because they don't want to be arrested. They don't want to get in trouble with Him. How does this happen to us? Well... We know that the Word of God, the Word of Christ, is contrary to the philosophies of men. We know that the practices that the Word of God dictates for the life of a Christian, they are very counter-cultural. The demands that God puts 
on a Christian are, are usually very much at odds with what our, uh, what our extended families might think is appropriate or, or necessary, really. The gospel, we know, does not set men on a pedestal. The gospel, when we bring the gospel to men, we know that it puts every man in the place of criminal. You've committed crimes against God. All of these things are, are connected to Christ and they present occasions for us to make a decision. Will I in this moment suffer with Him or will I leave Him? I know if I give this word, if I, if I actually live my life this way, if I actually tell this person what the Bible says about them, that's going to bring reproach upon me. And really, that's the reproach of Christ. They're, they're not necessarily hating you for you. They're, if you're doing it properly and biblically, they are reproaching Christ Himself. And you have the option, going into that situation, I'm either going to stand and bear that reproach with Him, or I'm going to sidestep that and just sort of avoid the whole situation. They hate Christ either way. They are going to reproach Christ. He's going to take it. The question is, are you going to take it with Him? And that's what He's saying. You will all fall away because of me this night. Verse 31b sets forth what I'm calling the root principle that I, that I hope will be the main emphasis of our time today. He says, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd... And the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He quotes there from Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7. It is written. The scriptures tell this. He's explaining how it is that he can make such a statement. This is not meant to be uh, causal. He's not saying you're going to stumble because it's written and you don't really have a, a choice in the matter. You've got to go along with the plan. He's saying this is going to happen because you're sinners. God knew it was going to happen. As a matter of fact, it's been written for a long time, you will scatter. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And so when we hear that, we're immediately whisked away to the Palestinian countryside. And you can picture on the hillside a flock of sheep grazing. And you can picture on the other side of the hillside uh, the, uh, a line of trees that leads into a dark and, and foreboding forest. And there, in between the forest and the flock, the shepherd has positioned himself. And he's standing watching his flock. And it's quiet. It's peaceful. They're eating. You might hear a couple bleats or a couple uh, uh, whimpers every now and then. But for the most part, it's all quiet. And then all of a sudden, a wolf comes out of the woods and attacks the shepherd. And he falls to the ground, and the wolf begins to attack him, bite at him, claw at him. He falls to the ground, he drops his shepherd's staff, he's trying to pull out his rod so that he can defend himself. And just as the wolf clamps down on his throat to kill him, he's able to see out of the corner of his eye the last of his sheep bouncing over out of sight in the pasture. And he knows in that moment, I've done my job. That's why I was here. We would never expect the sheep to begin to nudge each other and, and rise up on their hind legs and run to his rescue and pull the wolf off. That would be absurd. That's not what sheep do. 
That's what he's, that this is the principle. The sheep are going to scatter because the shepherd is going to be struck. Sheep don't defend shepherds. Shepherds defend sheep. Yeah. Strike the shepherd, sheep scatter. But here's the good news. He says in verse 32, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now he's already predicted his death and his resurrection multiple times. When we, we see that phrase, raised up, I think it's easy to see he's referring to his resurrection. And so the striking of the shepherd would refer to his arrest, his trial, his condemnation, his sentencing, his crucifixion, all of that. As all of that's taking place, the disciples are going to scatter. They're going to lead him all by himself, but he predicts it again. After I am raised up. And he gives them this promise, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, he's probably doing a couple things here. First, he knows what's about to happen. He's going to go into the garden and pray. They're going to fall asleep. And from this point, it's, it's pretty much chaos and, and, and busyness until he is on the cross. And so he's, he's putting this thing in their mind last. Listen, Galilee, just remember Galilee. Everything's going to go crazy. I'm going to be crucified. They're going to kill me. You're going to scatter. If you can just remember Galilee, when I'm raised up, I'm going to go before you to Galilee. I will meet you there. And that's what we see happening. I'm going to meet you there. So just keep that in mind. As, as awful as it may seem, as terrible as it's going to be, just remember Galilee. Go to Galilee. But the language here is also interesting that he says, I will go before you. And that is not simply chronological. It's not just, I'm going to get there first. It's not a race. It is chronological, but it also has the picture of being led to Galilee. <coughs> exact same phrasing is used in Mark chapter 10 and verse 32. It says, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Same language. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. The picture is, Christ is walking to Jerusalem, and they're, they're following him. And he's, he's walking so intently, he's walking in such a way that people are actually afraid. He's making them nervous about how he's walking. You've seen people do this. You realize if they're walking like that, maybe I should be walking too. Maybe there's something to get away from. He's making them nervous because he's so intent to get to Jerusalem. He's leading them, and they're following him like a shepherd does for his sheep. The, the real picture, not the same language, but the concept is painted for us in John 10, verses 2, and four, 2 to 4. Jesus himself says, He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. So here's what he's saying. I will be struck. You will scatter. But I will again take up my rod and my staff, and I will return to my post as shepherd, and I will lead you. The sheep need to remember we are dependent on the shepherd. And he's saying, don't worry, I will come back and I will lead my sheep. Now Peter, 
in verse 33, epitomizes the wrong response to all of this. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Now this is typical Peter, right? That, that's, that's very Peter of him. Proud, boastful, arrogant, his chest is puffed out. And notice the first thing he does is compare himself to the other disciples. He, he would almost agree with Christ about the rest of them. Yeah, you're, you're right, Lord. He, he, you could imagine him jumping to the side of Christ, looking at the disciples. You're right, Lord. Yeah, they would fall away, but, if, but I never would. Though they all fall away, I will never fall away. Now, this is helped a little bit by Luke 22:24, which tells us not long before this, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. The argument that, that pretty much describes the disciples whenever Christ would steal away from them. The, this is always the discussion. Who's the greatest? Who do you guys think is the greatest? Who's going to be regarded as the greatest? So they've been arguing and they've been debating. And Peter shows how confident he was in the argument. He's, his confidence is clearly in himself. Though they all fall away, I will never. At no time, under any circumstance, can't happen, I won't fall away. Maybe all of them, never me, never Peter. Contrary to Christ's clear words, you will all fall away. Peter says, not me. Negatively, I would never fall away. The positive assumption is, Lord, I'll stand by your side to the very end. I'm going to be right here. And so the Lord has to reinforce what He's just said. Verse 34, Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now you see that language of emphasis we talked a little about last week. Truly I tell you. Jesus said something, question mark pops up in Peter's head. The Lord knows it. Here he, he vocalizes it. So he has to drive it home. Yes, Peter, I said what I meant. And I meant what I said. As a matter of fact, this very night. Here's the time frame. Not tomorrow. Not ten years from now. Tonight. You're not even going to make it till the sun comes up. Before you deny me three times. Deny that you know me. Multiple accounts. We might would consider this worse than tripping up. Peter premeditatedly almost engages his mind in conversation and says, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. No, I don't know who that is. How awful is that compared to just being caused to stumble? He fought it through all for self-preservation. Yeah. I'll stand be beside you, Lord. And when it comes down to it, all he thinks about is himself. Peter buckles down in verse 35. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Emphatically. Let's go to the extreme, Lord. I'll go to, I'll go to the, the stake with you. I'll die with you, right beside you. Peter's the sheep who says, I would stand up and I would come there. And when the wolf was finished eating you, I'd lay down beside you. And I'd let it eat me. Now, why is Peter saying this? Is Peter lying? Does he know that... This is not the truth, but he wants to be deceptive. He's just telling a lie. I think Peter really believes what he's saying. He believes it. He is. He, he believes he's devoted to Christ. He loves his Lord. 
He's confident in his assertion. He is sincere in what he's saying. And Peter says in so many words, this is how I feel. This is my experience. Regardless of what Christ says, regardless of what others say or what's happening, I'm taking my stand in my own self-sufficiency. I've earned the right to say, not me. I'll never fall away. And at the end of the verse, we see that Peter's not an anomaly. All the disciples say the same thing. Probably seeing him getting a one-up upon them in this debate, who's going to be regarded as the greatest, they have to jump in. Well, me either, Lord. I would never do that. If Peter would do it and all of the disciples would do it, then surely we could be guilty of the exact same thing. Surely there's somebody in the room who would stand up right now and say, I'll go to the stake for Christ. I'll go. The henchmen come in. They start hauling us off like they did the Chinese Christians recently. I'll go. That's me. Sign me up. I'll lead the way. Surely somebody thinks that. How would you feel if I told you you won't make it? You'll be, you'll be slobbering in the corner crying. You'll let them take your children before you go. You would, you would say, how dare you? You don't know how strong I am in my faith. How would you feel if I told you 10 years from now, next week, before the service tonight, you will stumble and fall into a grievous sin that will bring reproach upon your last name, your family, and everything you ever do from here on out? You would say, surely not me. Now we learn from Peter that talk is cheap. It doesn't matter. Peter talked big, but it was meaningless. And some folks are like Peter, really good at talking. Really good at talking about growth and about holiness and boldness and taking a stand. And, and what, you, what it is that you do and what it is that everybody else should do. And yet you know, as well as I know, that when we are in the confines of our own hearts and our own minds and nobody's watching, we know how bold we are. We know the footing that sin tends to have. When you're put to the, the real test, which is your test, not somebody else's test, but the, the specific area where you are the weakest, you, you know how you respond. Peter had not been put to the ultimate test yet. That's why he's so brave. Because he hasn't been put there yet. We've all been there, right? Before we're married. When I get married, this is how it's going to be. And then we get married. And we say, well, when I have kids, dot, dot, dot. And then we have kids. You, you realize that until you're put in the crucible, you can't say with absolute immutable certainty how things are going to be. So what would you say if Christ told you you would fall away tonight? You can't know with certainty. All you can do is prepare now, learn what to do now for that time. And the text helps us to answer the question or gives us the question, the answer to the question by showing us Peter's bad example. We've been given a principle in this text which Peter refused to acknowledge. Here's the principle. Here I want you to gird up your minds, focus intently. I'm going to try not to be terribly technical, but here's the principle. Jesus is the shepherd. 
You are the sheep. That's the principle. Jesus is the shepherd. You are the sheep. So let's go back to the Palestinian countryside before the wolf attacks and the sheep are grazing and the shepherd's there and we can picture little lambs acting like little lambs. We've all seen the videos. We love little lambs. They're bouncing and they're frolicking and they're rolling around and they're climbing on each other's backs and they're jumping off. They don't have a care in the world. They're just being little lambs. The old sheep, however, will go down to graze and they'll look up at the shepherd. And they'll go down to graze and they look up at the shepherd. They go down to graze and they look up at the shepherd. And the shepherd begins to walk away. They stop grazing and they move where he's going. They go towards the shepherd. See, young and immature sheep are careless. They don't understand the dangers. They don't understand how important it is to be near the shepherd. But the old and mature and experienced sheep, they've learned from experience they had brothers and sisters. They had cousins that got snatched away by wolves and bears and lions. They learned, I better stay next to that man and be near that man. They've watched as that man has bravely pulled out his rod and whacked bears and lions and fought off wolves. They realize, oh, I don't have anything. I can't even run quickly. I, don't, I can't get away quickly. But I know that that man will defend me. You see, for the sheep, maturity is not displayed in self-sufficiency, but in utter, desperate reliance upon the shepherd. Right. Young sheep get to be old sheep not by becoming independent, but by becoming more and more dependent on the shepherd. You're the sheep. He's the shepherd. Peter, he's the shepherd. You're not going to defend him. Staying power as a Christian, is not secured by bold claims. Perseverance, as a Christian, is not maintained by taking strong stances. We know people who've got into the, the independent fundamental movement, and as soon as they get in, everybody starts dressing differently. They, the haircuts change or, or cease. Uh, they, they dress different. They act different. Secular music's gone. Books are gone. And eventually they fall away. We know that that wasn't enough. Extreme, bold stances are not enough. Longevity in the Christian life is not guaranteed simply by being vocal. We all know people who've been vocal believers, professors of Christ, and they've fallen away because it's not enough. Young saints get to be old saints not because they learn how to stand on their own two feet, but because they learn to lean constantly, daily upon the shepherd. Old saints have grown to know, mature saints have grown to know if that shepherd is stricken, I'm dead meat. I will scatter. I need to be with Him. So is this principle, Jesus Christ is the shepherd, you are the sheep, is that showing in the way that you live? How dependent really are you upon Christ? Now I could give out questionnaires <clears throat> with a, a scale, you know, 1 to 10. Some would say, well, I'm about a four dependent, I'm about a seven dependent. And we could crumple them all up and throw them in the trash can because we've already learned talk is cheap. It doesn't matter what, how, you, how, how dependent you think you are. How are you displaying your dependence upon Christ? What does it look like? 
Well, I want to give you two traits that very often go unnoticed from the passage that might be evidence that you are drifting into self-sufficiency or you're not relying upon Christ as much as you think you are. The first is this. A Christianity that leaves no room for stumbling. A Christianity that leaves no room for stumbling. If you subscribe to a Christianity or hold to a a faith that leaves no room for stumbling, then you might not be leaning upon Christ as much as you think you are. Now, this is in no way an approval of sin. This is in no way, I pray that it's not taken to mean, well, the pastor said everybody sins, so I mean, I guess sin's not really all that bad. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying if you have a Christianity that doesn't have room, that doesn't leave room for stumbling, for stumbling saints, then you're probably not trusting Christ as you all. Think about, I don't like the, the terminology of little sins, but if we keep the phrase of, of stumbling, think about little trip-ups. Common, everyday tendencies, unknown sins or or sins that we commit without even realizing we're sinning. Um, Somebody says something to you in response to something you say and your immediate reaction is, who does she think she is? You don't plan it. You're not thinking, I'm going to get upset at this person. It just sort of happens. Rolling through a stop sign instead of stopping at the stop sign. Mm. Little trip-ups, occasions where we have the opportunity to sin. If you don't have, if you if you have a Christianity that doesn't have room for that, then you're not going to put your feet on the floor every day, dependent upon the shepherd. You're going to think, well, I'm good for the most part until I see a big sin come, until I see a, 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 a real doozy. Then I'll begin to trust the shepherd. But until then, I'm, I'm fine. I can see a bear from a long way off. Until I see a bear, I'm fine. You forget about the foxes and the wolves. Yeah. Or, again, I don't like the phrase, but what we might call big sins. Major setbacks. Either these are sins that you have, have spent some time Fighting, mortifying, working against, or maybe it's one major act of disgrace. Our minds always go to marital infidelity. That, that, that thing that as soon as it happens, everybody knows about it, and, and it, it, it tarnishes somebody for a lifetime. One of those types of sins. If you have a Christianity that doesn't leave room for those types of sins, first you, you're discrediting a lot of men from history... Again, this is not an approval. I'm not saying go seek it. But what happens is, like Peter, this tends to foster a graceless self-exaltation because you've not sinned the way they sinned. We're not foolish enough to say, well, I don't sin. If any man says he has no sin, he's a liar. The truth's not in him. We, we, we would confess that. We all sin, but the problem comes in when we think, well, I don't sin like he sins. And so I begin to develop this graceless self-exaltation. Though they all sin, I would never sin. I could never be caught in that type of sin. I I would never do that. If that's the way you think, you're not going to be looking towards the shepherd. 
Or we could go all the way to what we call apostasy, an occasion that comes in the life of a person who professes to be a Christian, but God uses that occasion to show them and everybody else they are not and never were a Christian. And they ultimately fall away for good. They don't lose their salvation. They show that they never were a believer. See, here's a reality. There are people who profess to be Christians who fall away, and they stop making that profession. If you believe you're invincible, then you don't need a shepherd. If there's no danger lurking around the corner, you don't need protection. If there is no room for stumbling in your concept of Christianity, you're not going to be looking at the shepherd as you ought. Now this, these types of sins and this way of looking at Christianity, when I... As I'm describing it, you're all thinking of how we look at other people. Because that's what we tend to do. We talk about sin and we immediately start thinking about, well, I know somebody that sins like that. Yeah, I know somebody that's done that. And we begin to think about how we should think about other people because we, all, we do give ourselves more room for stumbling than we give others, generally. A phrase that I heard a couple weeks ago that I, I like we are very easily, or we, we, we can be very quickly, acutely aware of the sins of others before we're acutely aware of our own sins. We can catch on to other people's sins a lot faster than we do ours. And what happens is, if, if this is the kind of Christianity we have, we'll, we'll doubt their sincerity in a heartbeat. Somebody comes and confesses a sin. Well, I'm just really worried about it. I just, I don't know. You might you could commit the same sin tomorrow and you're fine, but somebody else does it and you begin to doubt their sincerity. This is probably evidence that you're looking at yourself and not Christ. You're not looking to Christ as you are. If you can't empathize with the weaknesses of others, then it probably at least comes across as though you don't think you're weak. If people don't feel comfortable to you opening up about their sins, confessing sins one to another, if they can't do that with you, it's probably because you give off the air that you don't sin. And you're just going to be blown away. A sinner? Stay, stay away. And that grows into graceless self-exaltation, self-sufficiency, and you're not dependent on the shepherd if you can do it. If you live with a persistent, unbending confidence... That you could never fall, and hear my language, that you could never fall, you're probably not trusting Christ as you should. Peter was confident twice over. Contrary to the word of Christ, eyeball to eyeball, you will all fall away before the rooster crows. I'm looking you in the eye. And he says, not me. The Bible tells us what happens to Peter? He falls away. It proves the reality that this unbending confidence is not enough. And, and so if you have that persistent, unbending confidence, a Christianity that leaves no room for stumbling, you've got to ask yourself, what is your confidence in? It can't be the Word of God because the Word of God very clearly says Christians fall. Christians sin. Christians stumble. What you are in essence saying is, well, I know the Word of God tells me about Abraham, Noah, 
Isaac, Jacob, Samson, David, Solomon, Peter, but not me. Though they all fall, I will never fall. You can't be trusting in Christ's words because His word says the opposite. You're trusting in your own foolish self-sufficiency. If there's no real felt sense of danger and weakness and inability, you're probably not trusting Christ as you ought. Secondly, second thing that we might find in our lives is a the regular comparing of ourselves with other Christians. Regularly comparing ourselves with other Christians. If you are regularly comparing yourself to other Christians or comparing other Christians to yourself, you're probably not trusting Christ as you should. And you're probably drifting towards self-sufficiency. See, Peter was certain that though all the other disciples fall away, he would not fall away. What he's saying in that moment is, I've got something they don't have. Jesus, you're not seeing this clearly. You don't, you've not recognized some traits in me that really separate me from these other men. I've got something they don't have. And so he was looking at himself as compared to the other disciples rather than what did Christ say? And if you're doing this, what you're doing is you're spending some time looking at other people and you're spending some time looking at yourself, but you're probably not looking to the shepherd very often. Now forget who, who made the, the statement for every look at yourself, look, make ten looks to Christ. We need to be looking at Christ often, but if you're living this lifestyle, you're looking at yourself and others more than Christ. Now this, I, this concept of self-comparison goes two ways. Because we're, we're, we're Reformed Baptists, so we're, we're very quick to say, oh, I, I'm more humble than Peter is. I would never compare myself and say that I'm better than somebody, because we've learned not to do that. There is that comparison to lesser men, which is what Peter's doing. We look at others and you see them fall. And you see something in them that, that you don't have. Or something in yourself that they didn't have. You look at their weaknesses and you rejoice that you're not like them. Well, of course he fell in that sin. He doesn't even believe in the five points. Of course he cheated on his wife. I mean, he doesn't even believe in the regulative principle of worship. Of course. Of course their children turned out like that. I mean, they sent them to the government school. As if somebody's salvation is based on anything we do. In those scenarios, the defining factor is you or them. It's people. That's comparing yourself to lesser men. But what we do is compare ourselves to greater men. Because we're, we're humble. So we look at others and we see something in them that we don't have. And we credit their success or their perseverance to something in them. I would be bold too if I knew all that he knows. I would take a stand for Christ too if I could articulate the gospel that well. I, I wouldn't struggle with reading my Bible every day if I had the self-discipline he has. If I had been converted as long as she's been converted, well, I, would, I wouldn't have the struggles that I have here. I would feel more comfortable praying in the corporate worship service if I could pray like him. If you're doing that, you're spending a little bit of time looking at yourself and a little bit of time looking at others, but you're not spending very much time looking at the shepherd. You're comparing yourself to others. How dependent 
are you upon Christ? It shows in how often you're looking to Him. We look to the shepherd most simply and easily through the eyes of faith, looking at the revelation found in God's Word. When we open the Scriptures, we come and we learn of Christ. We learn from the text, Christ is all-sufficient. We learn from the text, Christ Himself is devoted to keeping His sheep. We learn Christ is committed. He will not let one fall. We learn from the text what Christ is doing even now to make sure no sheep falls. We look to Christ. So the question is, is it a habit for you to look to the shepherd or do you look at your own self-sufficiency? We'll go back to the Palestinian countryside and you can imagine these sheep, these older mature sheep. They eat and then they look at the shepherd and they eat and they look at the shepherd and they want to make sure. And it could become maybe pretty easy to develop this habit of just head down, head up, head down, head up, head down, head up. Right. And they're just used to just going through that motion. And eventually they're going to snap out of it and their head's going to come up and they're going to realize, I don't see my shepherd. I've not seen my shepherd in, oh, how long has it been? I've not seen the shepherd. And, and they want to lay eyes on Him. That's the difference. There's a difference between looking to the Word and seeing just black ink on white paper or seeing doctrinal truths and coming to the Word to see their Christ. The word we use is laying eyes on or putting eyes on something. Your kids are outside playing. You say, I'm going to go put eyes on them. You don't open the door and look at the trees and say, well, I guess they're still out there. You want your eyeballs to take in their shape, their figure. i got to put eyes on the kids. A sheep is comforted not just because he's picking his head up and down, not just because he's opening the book. There's no comfort here. I've got to put eyes on the shepherd. Seeing the shepherd from the text is what comforts me. We, we can look just ritualistically. Every day we get up, read the Bible, go to work. Or we can look and put eyes, the eyes of faith on the shepherd. Security and safety and comfort is found in seeing the shepherd. Come to the text to see the shepherd. Because again, it's very easy for us to become dependent on the ritual. A sheep is not made comfortable by lifting his head up and down. He is comforted by the presence of the shepherd. And that will just typically engender more self-sufficiency when we think that comfort is found just in going through the motions rather than looking to Christ and seeing Him, laying eyes on Him. What does the text teach me about why I need Him so badly? What does it show me about how He's working? He's ever living to make intercession for me. He will not let me go. He died for me. He can't. He will cease to be God if He lets one of His sheep go. i got to see that. That's what comforts me. And the sheep who are most convinced of their weaknesses and their need for the shepherd are going to be the ones who are most diligent to lay eyes on him. If you're not diligent to lay eyes on him, you might be diligent to read your Bible. I'm not talking about reading your Bible. I'm saying you're diligent to lay eyes on him. If you're not diligent there, it's probably because you, you don't need him. You're comforted simply by the fact that you opened the book and read. So how would you respond if I told you what Christ told His disciples. That you would all fall away because of Christ tonight. You can't go to church enough. 
to keep yourself. You can't read your Bible enough to keep yourself. You can't know enough to keep yourself. Listen, you cannot love Christ enough to keep yourself. He's the shepherd. He keeps you. You've got to see the shepherd. Our comfort is found in the shepherd. Not in just our sheepliness. Doing sheep stuff. There's no comfort in doing sheep stuff. This is why David said, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why, David? Why are you not going to be afraid? you got your sword. I know what it is. You've got your sword. Saul killed his thousands. David killed his ten thousands. You know. You're ready because you've got your sword. I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. How do you know, David? How do you know he's got his rod and his staff? Because the Bible says that he protects his own, that he keeps his own, that he disciplines his own, he defends his own. He put eyes on the shepherd. And Christ himself says this in John 27, or 10, 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Is he a liar or a truth teller? He tells the truth. Christ, he can't lie, he's God. I give them eternal life. Are you his sheep? There, lay eyes on him. He can't lie. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. I'm afraid I might perish. Christ said you won't. Is he a liar? He said you'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What if I get snatched out of his hand? He said nobody will snatch them out of you out of his hand. Is he a liar? He goes even further. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He says the Father and the Son and we could use other texts to bring in the Holy Spirit as well and say the triune God of the universe is working to keep you. That's where the comfort is found. It's not in how much you do how much you grow, how much you mature, how much you advance, you're still a sheep. If anything, you just become a bigger, slower sheep. A more defenseless sheep as you mature. The sheep don't keep the shepherd. The shepherd keeps the sheep. As we come to the Lord's Supper, we are in essence laying eyes on the shepherd. That's what we do. Jesus says in John 10 verses 14 to 18 I am the good shepherd see see him here I am the good shepherd I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep I have other sheep that are not of this fault I will bring them also, or I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. How devoted is the Lord Jesus to your salvation? He laid down His life to secure it. He ever lives to make intercession for the transgressors. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by Him. The bread and the cup are reminders that Christ lives to keep us eternally. We, we, we know men who have hobbies and we say, man, he, he lives for that. He lives for whatever. Christ lives. What does He live for? He lives for keeping His people. Ever making intercession for us. He will lose none. So think on Christ, consider Christ, examine yourself, and then we'll come to the table.